All right, this is increment 134 of Hebrews 2020, and we're dealing with a kind of a contrast. We've said before that Hebrews is kind of a nice mixture of exhortation and explication or exposition, and under exhortation, there's two kinds of incentive. There's negative incentive, which we're going to label under the phrase nothro, or the word really, nothroi. This is a a very unusual word for the New Testament, nothroi, N-O-T-H-R-O-I, nothroi. And that's going to be the negative incentive from today. And the only two passages in the New Testament where this word is found are both in Hebrew. See, I mix up my Greek and English, nothroi. And the word is found... In Hebrews 5.11, where we're going today, also in Hebrews 6.12. So this word becomes the kind of means to bracket a section in this epistle. Nothroi is the negative incentive part of the exhortation that we will be looking at today. And... Then the positive is going to be the word mimetai, which means imitator in the highest sense. Mimetai, M-I-M. This is the, the positive incentive, incentive part of the exhortation. Mimetai, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12 also. Don't become nothroi, but rather be mimetai is going to be the focus on this increment and possibly two increments back to back. So we'll begin with prayer. Father, we pray today for the grace that we require in order to hold fast the hope that's set before us until the end, until we reach a realization of that promise of full assurance in this life and until we reach a place where we can be assured of approval by you on the day of evaluation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ben F. Meyer, that's M-E-Y-E-R, defines conversion in terms of a change of horizons. Conversions are changes of horizons. He then gives a very helpful but concise definition of three kinds of conversions. There are four that we concern ourselves with, and they're all going to be relevant and pertinent in our study of Hebrews because we're dealing with, again, the theological functional specialty of foundations. When we deal with foundations, we're not dealing with fundamental doctrines, but we're dealing with conversions in the subject who does the theology, who does the study, who is addressed by the scriptures. There has to be a kind of a correspondence between the state and condition of the heart of the recipient of Hebrews and the message of Hebrews. 
And so what are required are conversions. There are four kinds. They have already been labeled as religious, moral, intellectual, and then finally psychic. Sadly, I'm least qualified to speak of the psychic conversion, but one of my intended studies for the future is to study exactly what the psychic conversion is as defined and developed over the years by R.M. Duran, who this very year departed to be with the Lord. But the best and most concise and precise definition of three of these four conversions I've ever seen comes from a book called Reality and Illusion by Ben F. Meyer. Reality and Illusion in New Testament scholarship. And this is what he says. Here are the three of the four conversions, concise definitions and precise. Religious conversion, he says, is the all-pervasive change effected by allotting the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. I want to reiterate that because it's loaded. Religious conversion is the all-pervasive change effected by allotting the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. Now, we know that this happens when Romans 5, 5 occurs, when the Holy Spirit pours the love of God out throughout our hearts, and that's when we are converted. That's when we allot or give or prioritize the primacy of the love of God over all things in our lives. The next one, he says, moral conversion is the habitual priority that, that one gives to values over satisfactions when the two conflict. So when the two, there's a confliction or a conflict between what would be personally satisfying to me and what would be of value beyond my personal preference and satisfaction, a moral conversion is when you choose the value over the personal satisfaction. I'm just kind of explicating what he already said. So I want to reiterate again because this paragraph is almost invaluable. Religious conversion is the all-pervasive change affected by allotting the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. Moral conversion is the habitual priority that gives that one gives to values over satisfactions when the two conflict. Finally, intellectual conversion lies in a clean break with picture thinking, he calls it. We'll explain what that means in a minute. It is a clean break with picture thinking a set of ideas formed in childhood. Knowing is like seeing. That's what we call, and I'm going to break again from his quote, knowing is like seeing is what is called naive realism. Naive realism assumes that when you see something, you know something. When you see something, you properly perceive something. That's naive realism. It's childish thinking, and it's sometimes magical thinking or thinking that you about something that you want to be true and making it true in your own mind. It's childish thinking. And so knowing is like seeing is 
a, it is a realism, but it's a naive realism. So intellectual conversion is the adoption, I'm quoting now from Ben Meyer, intellectual conversion is the adoption in place of picture thinking style of realism, of a realism grounded in the compound of experience, understanding, and judgment. Now an intellectual conversion, therefore, I would say is a change of thinking from naive realism to critical realism. Now, because of the definitions of these three conversions and how important they are and how concise and precise Meyer was, I'm going to read it again, that paragraph, without explication by yours truly. Religious conversion is the all-pervasive change effected by allotting the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. Moral conversion is the habitual priority that one gives to values over satisfactions when the two conflict. Finally, intellectual conversion lies in a clean break with picture thinking, which is a set of ideas formed in childhood. Knowing is like seeing. Intellectual conversion is the adoption in place of picture-thinking style of realism, of a realism grounded in the compound of experience, understanding, and judgment. Now, Duran's psychic conversion is something that happens on the level of that first way of knowing, which is experience or sense. There's a conversion that happens... We might almost even say that affects the feelings of a person, the feelings that then affect the values, etc. But I have much more study to do on that before I can speak with any authority on it. And so when I first read Meyer's definition of the intellectual conversion, my mind immediately flew to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. And I want to look at that. This is all important lead-in to our study today in Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 13, translation from the Greek, when I was a child. Now, here's a word used five times in this one verse. It's nepios, N-E-P-I-O-S, nepios. When I was a child, notice what he said, what Meyer said about childish thinking and that we have to make a break with picture thinking that we developed in our childhood. And this word is also used in 1 Corinthians 3.1 where Paul talks about the napios or the infant or the child in need of milk rather than solid food, which is again going to become relevant in Hebrews 5. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Use the word nepios again. I thought like a child. Nepios used for the third time in that one verse. I reasoned like a child. Nepios again used fourth time in that one verse. When I became an adult, I put away childish ways. 
And that word there, childish ways, is the plural ta, tu, and then napiu, which is an adjectival form of the word napios. So I put away childish things. When I became an adult, I put away what? Childish things, which means I put away childish speaking. I put away childish thinking. I put away childish reasoning. So I could be attentive, I could be intelligent, and I could be reasonable and, in fact, responsible as an adult. When I became a man, Paul said, when I became an adult, I put away childish ways. This perfectly encapsulates the meaning of the intellectual conversion in which there is a clean break, to put it in Meyer's terms, with picture thinking. Now, once again, to these changes of horizons. Now, let me give you an example of what, I, what he means by change of horizons, what I might mean in a slightly adapted version of what a change of horizons is. We've said it before. If you're on a certain level of a mountain, say a lower level outlook on a mountain, you see a horizon. And you see, perhaps, in that horizon a certain view of things. And to that, that's your reality. That's your reality under naive realism. You see, and to see is to know what's out there. But say you're driving in a circular motion around a mountain, and you reach a higher outlook on that mountain, and you look out over the same scene, but your horizon is much further now, it's much wider now. It's much more extensive now. You've undergone a change of horizons. That's like a conversion. Now, say someone is on this upper outlook and says, wow, I see over that stand of trees there a herd of elk. And somebody says, no, there's no herd of elk. He hollers down from the lower outlook. There's no herd of elk out there. I'm looking out there. I don't see it. Therefore, it's not there. And that's kind of like what happens when you see the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. You've been positioned at a certain standpoint to see that dimensions of the love of Christ, where someone else who isn't stationed in the same place, that has nothing to do with your virtue or your supremacy over someone else or your superiority over someone else. It's just that you have undergone a conversion, which is a change of horizon. From your horizon, you see a, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, your friend, doesn't see it. There's no need fighting about it, but you can pray for your friend that the Lord will perhaps elevate him or her to that place to see. Only God can create these kind of conversions. You can't and I can't. So browbeating never works. Argumentation never works, although healthy dialectic and healthy debate can be helpful, can be fun, if you can maintain your friends by doing it. So there has to be a clean break from childish thinking. And from my assessment of what the church looks like and what websites I see or what I see over the airwaves it seems like the church at large might just need that clean break from childhood, largely speaking, today. They may have an insight on the finished work of Christ. 
And that's a great insight and a wonderful illumination to have, but they may not yet have the extent or uh, the implications of the finished work of Christ toward humanity, toward all of humanity, toward all of creation. That requires an advanced insight, that requires a more mature word, and that requires, of course, interior conversions. And that's where sometimes we find the rub. That's where sometimes we find the difficulty. That's what sometimes becomes problematic. So, because, you know, a lot of people like to be so busy that you could view them to be workaholics, but they don't do the work that counts when it comes to intellectual work at understanding the scriptures and concentrating on the word of God. That's the real work that needs to be done for spiritual advance. So now, once again, to these changes of horizons or conversions that were wonderfully and concisely defined by R.M., by, rather, by Ben Meyer, R.M. Duran's psychic conversion, which affects the most basic level of human consciousness, which is that of experience or sense. And so I think psychic conversion, I have a feeling, is possibly one of the most important, if not the most important conversion to have because it is on the level of the first way of knowing and the first level of consciousness. And so that would be fundamental. But I've yet to explore this fruitful topic like I want to, and I need to, and I hope to, with productive results in the future. In any case, the whole section before us has to do with conversions in the subjects or the readers and hearers of Hebrews so that they will not be nothroi, nothroi, which is negative incentive, but rather mimetai, those who inherit the promises and who receive divine approval through faith and perseverance. That's positive incentive. Hebrews is a combination, a creative combination, really an elegant combination of exhortation and explication or exposition. And under exhortation, it is an elegant blending of negative and positive incentive. Nothroi means sluggish, means lazy, means lethargic. It means not doing the required work. And this, in this case, it's intellectual work. It's spiritual work. Nothroi, therefore, means sluggish or lethargic. Mimetai, on the other hand, means imitators. And in this case, it is mimesis or an imitation of those who inherit the promises. And the list of those who inherit the promises who are worthy of this imitation are found in Hebrews chapter 11. So there is, you can put an exegetical arrow between Hebrews 6.12 and put it all the way up into Hebrews 11.4 through 40 where we have all these examples worthy of imitation. Imitation in its highest form. I don't mean mimicry. I mean imitation in the sense of a participation in their kind of perseverance, courage, sometimes bravery. And most of all, steadfast endurance. So, Hebrews, in our next section, 
has to do with conversions in the subjects, that is, in you and in me who are studying Hebrews, so that we will not be nothroi, but rather we will be mimetai, those who inherit the promises and who receive divine approval through faith and perseverance. There's your positive incentive. Now, in the way of Jesus Christ, Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, while not dealing with Hebrews per se, nevertheless hit the bullseye with what faith is in the context of Hebrews. And I found this little section, read this book years ago, and it was very well worth a read. Moltmann writes, the patience of hope. Now, this is a phrase found in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. It's mismarked in the book that I read here. They actually have kind of a mismarking of it. They say 1 Thessalonians 3, but I know they mean 1 Thessalonians 1.3. The patience of hope, he says, is part of the fundamental structure of new life in the community of Christ. Faith is not a matter of continually new decision, he says. It means faithfulness to the decision that God made, which God made for men and women in Christ. Those who believe in Christ will become sharers in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance of Christ. And he puts Revelation 1.9 as... A reference there. So I'll read that again quickly because it's important to as to how faith is used, how it's defined in the context of Hebrews. The patience of hope, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, is part of the fundamental structure of new life in the community of Christ. Faith is not a matter of, cont- of continually new decisions. It means faithfulness to the decision which God made for men and women in Christ. Those who believe in Christ will become sharers in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance of Christ. This is extremely important because faithfulness, there is no faithfulness unless it's a participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ, in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, in the fruit of the Spirit which is Christ's own faithfulness. And that's that more factor called grace, when we participate in Christ's faithfulness. We don't just imitate Christ's faithfulness. Imitation here in the sense that it's defined in our passage, mimetai, means a manifestation by participation in the same faithfulness. So faith is almost synonymous with perseverance in Hebrews. Faith is almost synonymous with perseverance in Hebrews. Though faith by its subjective definition consists of, quote, the assurance of hoped-for things and the conviction of things unseen, Hebrews 11.1, faith in action, I'll call it, is faithfulness or persistence in holding fast that assurance and conviction, even when opposed by what is apparent to the eyes. 
and contradicted by the prevalent megatrends of religious and political society. And that's where courage comes in. That's where confidence becomes courage. Confidence in God becomes courage before men, before people, before crowds, before societies, before magistrates, before authorities who are in the astonishing ineptitude of governmental institutions like we have today. Some expositors of Hebrews see an identifiable section of the homily being 511 to 620. Now let's do, this is, here we're dealing with structure, a very important part of the study of Hebrews. Some people see, and rightly, and I do too, a structure, in the structure rather, and a section identified here in 511 to 620. And some expositors of Hebrews that I've studied see this as an identifiable section. And this seems reasonable, especially, and we've already looked at it, given the fact that it's bracketed by the phrase archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. If you're looking at your Bible, that appears at the end of 510. The end of 510, we have the phrase archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek, which is a quotation of Psalm 110.4 or the Greek 109.4. And at the end of 620, you have precisely that same clause or phrase, archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek, the end of 620. So at the end of 510 and the end of 620, you have kind of what we might call brackets for a section of Hebrews, a section of the homily, which we call Hebrews. Others see chapter 5 and verse 11 through 620 being divided or subdivided into two segments. First, Hebrews 5.11 to 6.12, and then 6.13 to 6.20. So let's look at that and subdivide it a little bit. 5.11 to 6.12, and then 6.13 to 20. Is this a valid subdivision of this section? I think so. And the reason that 511 to 612 can be viewed as a distinct subsection of the structure of this homily is because both Hebrews 511 and 612 contains the descriptive term nothroi. Remember that term? Nothroi. N-O-N-O. T-H-R-O-I. Only used twice in the New Testament, this word, nothroi. And that's it. N-Omega-O-T-H-R-O-I. Nothroi. The only two times it's used in the New Testament are right here. And they bracket this subsection in Hebrews 5.11 and 6:12. So I see no problem with the division or the subdivision of Hebrews 5:11 to 6:12 followed by 6:13 to 6:20. Consequently, it's reasonable to consider this larger section 5:11 to 6:20 as subdivided into 5:11 to 6:12 and 6:13 to 6:20. Which again 
5.11 and 6.12 are bracketed by that phrase or that term nothroi as part of an exhortation of the readers slash hearers not to become nothroi. In both cases it's a plural adjective which serves to categorize a particular attitude and behavioral mode. I'll say that again. It characterizes a particular attitude and behavioral mode which prevents spiritual progress and precludes the possibility of reaching a stated goal or objective. Being nothroi virtually guarantees that they and you and me, us, that we will join the already teeming mass of aimless drifters in the world rather than traveling through this no man's land of in this what we call the clash of the ages as pilgrims. You're either going to be a drifter or a pilgrim. If you're a nothroi, nothroi, you will be a drifter. You will drift off course and that's can deteriorate into worse and worse spiritual condition that you do not want to enter. Now I'm saying this to a people, some of whom have already become nothroi, sluggish, dull, lethargic about hearing, partly because you live in a low-grade hysteria about events around you, partly because you expect or anticipate disaster rather than anticipating blessing from God in your life partly because your thinking is off, you have become lethargic and are not doing the work that counts, which is the intellectual work of receiving with attentiveness the Word of God and believing it. And that's where some of you are, to be quite blunt and to be quite frank and candid about it. So this is very important exegesis for the time. Don't think because you see the universally saving horizon of Jesus Christ that you've got the spiritual life knocked and that you've already secured divine approval and the day of evaluation. You haven't. In fact, you may know all mysteries and so may I and we may have faith that moves mountains and so may I but if we don't have love, we have nothing and we are nothing, we seek we will receive no real divine approval when this whole thing's over. So consider that an exhortation. I know the state of the flock, and that's one of the things God allows me to see, even though I'm not present with you face to face. And I know that among some of you, there is a spiritual lethargy and a laziness to do the real work of prioritizing Bible doctrine on a daily basis. I know that. So being nothroi virtually guarantees that you will join the already teeming mass of aimless drifters in this world rather than traveling as a pilgrim through no man's land to an objective and a stated destination. The word nothroi is used only in these two places in all the New Testament and serves to bracket this subsection. But we want to also take a look at where it's used once in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, the Greek text, 
Proverbs 22:29 says this, and I've translated it from the Greek. It says, a visionary, literally one who sees, this whole series is called We See Jesus, a visionary, that is one who sees, who is skilled at his work, should serve before kings and should not serve nothroi men, nothroi people, slothful, lethargic, apathetic people. It's also used in a similar way in Sirach, which is the writings of a sage named Ben Sirah. Sirach, which I do not view as part of the canonical scriptures, but it's part of the Apocrypha. But in Sirach 429, it says, because of the use of the word nothros, it's, it's important for us to look at it. Don't be careless in your talking, it says, or lazy, and that's nothros, same word, only singular, and sloppy in your conduct. Don't be careless in your thinking or lazy and sloppy in your conduct. The word can be found in the writings of Clement of Rome, who's one of the patristic scholars in his own epistle to the Corinthians called 1 Corinthians chapter 34 and section 1. He uses the word nothrois. It's also found in Plato, the classical writings of Plato and Aristotle. It's found in the military, military historian Polybius and others. So the word isn't uncommon. It's just uncommon in the Bible and rare. When combined with the phrase tes akoes, or in hearing, as it is in Hebrews 5.11, it means to become hard of hearing or lethargic in listening. It has to do with a failure on the most basic level of transcendent living, that being attentiveness. It is synonymous with the word that Jesus used to describe the sad disciples, sad and slow, whom he encountered on the road to Emmaus. He called them out as being thoughtless. The word here is anoetoi. Now this is a, we would call it a synonym. A-N-O-E. T-O-I, anetoi, or anoetoi, anoetoi. And that's, let me just do that again because I want to get the exact Greek to it. And again, this is to the slow and sad disciples. He called them A-N-O-E-T-O-I, anoetoi, which is a synonym to Nothroi, but it means thoughtless. And then he called them slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. Meaning, all that they've said about the Messiah of Israel. They were plodding along on the road to Emmaus, really going to a place that they shouldn't be going. And isn't it just like the Lord to confront us on a road that we are on that we shouldn't be on? Like the road to Damascus or the road to Emmaus. He draws up alongside us when we don't expect it sometimes. So he called them out. You're thoughtless and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. 
You'll see that in print in the Greek about the Messiah of Israel. And that specifically that it was necessary that he suffer and then enter into his glory. So why are you plodding around and sad and whining about your Messiah being crucified? That's exactly what should have happened. Luke 24, 25 to 27, which again is precisely the content of Hebrews 2.10. It was God's intention and it was necessary in God's eyes that the founder of salvation be perfected through suffering. Hebrews 2.10. So no throi are those who are slow to believe and to understand spiritual things. They are prone to oversights of insights or flights from insights. They don't want to know. They don't want to learn. They don't want to do the work to learn. They want you to summarize it in brief little packages and give it to them in spoonfuls or droppers. And that's sometimes due to the fact that they've invested or reinvested in certain biases that serve to block the passage of insights into the mind. Sometimes people get invested in biases and the biases become blockades to the entrance of insights into the mind. Now, when we say, when we talk about, like to use Hosea's term about a backslidden heifer, when we backslide, sometimes we reinvest ourselves in biases that once we had been converted away from. And that's, that's tragic to the spiritual life. You say, well, the spiritual life doesn't mean that much to you. That's a tragedy. The very fact that you're indifferent about the spiritual life, but very much all in for the family life and say with all the bobbleheads on TV, family is everything. You may invest yourself in a lot of things, but if you think the spiritual life is not that important or something to be dabbled in like a dilettante, you're already in a spiritual catastrophe. And it's going to be manifested in the day when our works will be tested by fire. So I'm just trying to do you a favor here. So then, we might have to just spread this out into two messages, I think. No throy. Don't be a no throy. It is sometimes due to being reinvested in certain biases served to block the passage of insights into the mind where they enter the texture of the mind and where they create new motivations and really living, new livingness, and new being, new way of being. Because of distractions or low-grade hysteria or anticipation of misfortune or dread, and some people live there all the time. They live in a low-grade anticipation of disaster or catastrophe or waiting for the next shoe to drop or the next person to die or the next sickness, the next pandemic, the next shooting, the next war, the next this, the next that. They live in a state of low-grade and sometimes high-grade dread and hysteria. This is a blockage to insight. Some people should be rather anticipating blessing from God now, and then dealing with adversities when they inevitably come up. 
So, because of the distraction of low-grade hysteria or the anticipation of misfortune or dread, people become slow to apprehend spiritual things. Apprehension of certain subjects becomes difficult for them. Because of this, teachers have a difficult time teaching them because of these blocks. They have a hard time making intelligible the mature doctrines that are needed to go to maturity. Now, these people may be on the ball with certain activities. They may seem to always be busy. They may seem to be admired by their peers as being getting a lot of things done in life. They may be even workaholics, but they don't do the real work needed to concentrate on the deeper things of God. And so they're wasting their time. They're lethargic in all their running around. So if you're proud of being somebody who gets a lot of things done and multitasks, but your tasks don't include prioritizing the word of God, you're a loser. And you should probably label yourself as that and sit down and think about it for a little while until God effects a conversion in you. Now you say, you're yelling at me. Yes, I am. Are you going to apologize, you may ask in your mind. No, I'm not. Time is too short. I'm in my eighth decade. I can say whatever the hell I want now. You don't know you have a license to do that once you cross 70. Now, in closing, therefore, today's message, the adjective nothros or nothroi is also a synonym for another word called argos. Just trying to give you a sense of what's here now. Argos, A-R-G-O-S, argos. And that means also lazy, idle, neglectful. I think it was Barth that did a magnificent series of teachings and really an extensive essay on human slothfulness. Slothfulness is at the base of much of our iniquity, much of our problem, much more than we even imagine or know, human slothfulness. But Argos is found in 1 Timothy 5.13 and has to do with careless speech or with talking without carefully thinking in Matthew 12:36. I'm sure no one listening to the sound of my voice today ever speaks without carefully thinking about what they're going to say or thinking about the fact that what they're going to say next they're accountable for in the day of judgment. Argos therefore is used by Jesus in Hebrew, in Matthew 12, 36, when he said, not me, I'm telling you that people will be accountable in the day of judgment for every idle word they will have said. Pan rema argos. Pan rema argon. Every idle word. So in any and all cases, nothroi, is a term worthy of censure even in the day of judgment. Again, argos is used in 2 Peter 1.8, and it's related to unfruitfulness or fruitlessness, to be idle and fruitless in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that all invites future censure at the judgment seat. Now, I'm not saying that. It says it here right in front of us. You know what that's incentive to do, in my view? 
that's incentive to let our words be few. God is in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few, said the preacher, Koheleth, in Ecclesiastes 5.2. And also, it's incentive to give thought before we give answers to questions people ask in Proverbs 15.28. The righteous, says the scripture, the righteous heart studies to give an answer. Give some thought before it answers. And so the PT here has broken off the discussion of Jesus as archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. After a tantalizing introduction, really, that goes from 1-1 all the way up to 5-10. Although that's also subdivided. But he doesn't do this without forethought on his part. For though Hebrews is a homily, and has all the features of a spoken sermon. It was nevertheless meticulously designed with this section in mind as a crucial cog in the machinery. And we're going to continue on this in our next increment, which would be, I guess, increment, I'm not guessing, I'm proclaiming it will be increment 135. Father, give us the courage to take this word bravely and to take it as adults and father may it be motivation so that we are pre-moved by the holy spirit to take action and to do the work that really counts which is the work of attentiveness to your word especially as the word presents to us advanced insights for our spiritual advance and i ask this in the name of our great archpriest for the age, Jesus our Lord, amen.